House and Senate have both adjourned. The House will likely not come back until after the election, while the Senate will likely come back to vote on the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Last week on the House floor, the House came back to work on Tuesday and moved to table U.S. Representative Louis Gohmert's very, very clever HRES 1148, which, had it passed, would have required the Speaker of the House to, quote, remove any item that names, symbolizes, or mentions any political organization or party that has ever held a public position that supported slavery or the Confederacy from any area within the House wing of the Capitol or any House office building, unquote. The vote to table was 223 to 176. Then the House took up and passed under suspension of the rules, H.R.S. 1155, reaffirming the House of Representatives' commitment to the orderly and peaceful transfer of power. That resolution passed by a vote of 397 to 5. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed H.R. 6270, the Uyghur Forced Labor Disclosure Act. The bill passed by a vote of 253 to 163. Then the House took up and passed a bill under suspension. And then the House took up and passed H.R. 1161, the rule that would govern consideration of H.R. 925, the legislative vehicle for the updated and revised HEROES Act, the House's latest coronavirus relief bill. On Wednesday evening, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin offered Speaker Pelosi a substantially larger deal than Senate Republicans had passed earlier in September. Rather than stick to the roughly $500 billion contours of the Senate Republican plan, Mnuchin more than tripled that number and offered a coronavirus relief proposal at $1.62 trillion. Granted, that was still about $600 billion less than the House Democrats' latest offer, pegged at $2.2 trillion, but it was a lot closer. All day Thursday, members of the House waited to hear if there was going to be a deal on a new coronavirus relief bill. Votes were held up all day long, and it was after 8 p.m. when the House finally voted on the Democrats' latest version of a coronavirus relief bill, recognition that no deal was to be had. The vote was a consolation prize of sorts for the freshman Democrats who had been demanding another vote on a smaller package so they could go home and tell their constituents they were still fighting for more coronavirus relief. But the bill was still so top-heavy that many of those freshman Democrats were incensed. No fewer than 18 of them crossed party lines to vote against the bill to register their discontent with their speaker's strategy. In the end, the bill passed by a vote of 214 to 207. Then the House voted on the rule that would govern consideration of H.R.S. 1153, condemning unwanted, unnecessary medical procedures on individuals without their full informed consent, and H.R.S. 1154, condemning QAnon and rejecting the conspiracy theories it promotes. On Friday, the House took up and passed H.R.S. 1153 by a vote of 232 to 157. Then the House took up and passed H.R.S. 1154, by a vote of 371 to 18. And then they were done. And as I said, I do not expect them back until after the election. Last week on the Senate floor, the Senate also came back to work on Tuesday. First up was a vote to invoke cloture on H.R. 8337, the continuing resolution to keep the government funded through December 11. Cloture was invoked by a vote of 82 to 6. While the Senate was voting on the continuing resolution, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer was employing a little-used tactic to take control of the Senate floor and set up Republicans for a tough vote on Obamacare later in the week. He filed cloture on a bill that would put the Senate on record prohibiting the Department of Justice from advocating for the repeal of Obamacare in any court case. 
a clear reference to the Texas v. California case that the Supreme Court will be hearing one week after the election on November 10. Schumer knew there was no way that bill would ever pass the Senate, but that was not his point. He wanted to force Joni Ernst and Susan Collins and Cory Gardner and Martha McSally and all the other Republican senators in tough races to take a tough vote. Would they defend Obamacare or not? On Wednesday, the Senate took up and passed H.R. 8337, the continuing resolution. The vote to pass it was 84 to 10. Then the Senate took up and agreed to proceed on a motion to proceed to the House message to accompany S-178, a bill to condemn gross human rights violations of ethnic Turkic Muslims in Xinjiang and calling for an end to the arbitrary detention, torture, and harassment of these communities inside and outside China. The vote to agree to proceed was close, 48 to 46. Then the Senate took up a motion to table S. Amendment 2673, offered by Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina to amend the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, that's HIPAA, to prohibit pre-existing condition exclusions. This was Majority Leader McConnell's answer to the Schumer maneuver, a defense of sorts. The motion was rejected by a vote of 47 to 47, but it gave Republicans in tough races cover a chance to vote for something so they could go back home and say, look, I just voted to amend HIPAA to ensure that no one could be denied insurance because of pre-existing conditions. On Thursday, the Senate took up the Schumer bill, S-4653. Any member can file cloture on a bill. It's just done very rarely because it can lead to chaos. And neither side, not even the minority, likes chaos. So S-4653 was a Democrat bill, quote, to protect the health care of hundreds of millions of people of the United States and prevent efforts of the Department of Justice to advocate courts to strike down the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, end quote. That is, had the bill passed, it would have prevented the Department of Justice from sending its lawyers to the Supreme Court on November 10 to argue in the Texas v. California challenge to Obamacare. All Schumer was looking for was a vote he could hang around the necks of the Republican senators in tough re-election campaigns. He didn't need a vote on the bill itself because he knew it wasn't going anywhere anyway. All he needed was a vote he could use to portray Republicans as heartless because they refused to, in his words, defend Obamacare. So a cloture vote was just fine. In this instance, cloture was rejected by a vote of 51 to 43. Republicans Susan Collins of Maine, Joni Ernst of Iowa, Cory Gardner of Colorado, Martha McSally of Arizona, and Lisa Murkowski and Dan Sullivan of Alaska crossed party lines to vote with the Democrats. But Steve Daines of Montana and Tom Tillis of North Carolina and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler of Georgia, each of whom is in a barn burner of a re-election race, all took the tough stand and voted against cloture. And then they were done. Now to the Supreme Court. Amy Coney Barrett began making the rounds of her Senate courtesy calls, accompanied by White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and White House Counsel Pat Ciplone. Late in the week, Majority Leader McConnell, who has not said anything definitive yet on when he plans to bring the Barrett nomination to the floor of the Senate or whether he plans to hold the confirmation vote before or after the November 3rd election, said he would have no problem holding the confirmation vote after the election during the lame duck session. He may, not have a pro- he may not have a problem holding the confirmation vote in the lame duck session, but others might. Suppose Joe Biden defeats President Trump. The left's demands that no vote be held at all would be loud. Suppose the Democrats recapture control of the Senate. The left's demands that no vote be held at all would be even louder. 
Suppose both those things happen. The caterwauling from the left would be so loud no one would be able to get any work done. So while he is not yet tipping his hand, I am confident that the majority leader will, in the end, choose to schedule the confirmation vote the last week of October, right before the November 3rd election. Late in the week, it was revealed that Senators Mike Lee of Utah and Tom Tillis of North Carolina, both of whom are members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which will be holding hearings on Amy Coney Barrett's nomination beginning on October 12th, have both tested positive for the coronavirus. Each said he would isolate for 10 days, which conveniently means they could join their colleagues for the first day of the confirmation hearings. Nevertheless, Democrats immediately demanded a delay in the confirmation hearings. Without enough Republicans, Senate Democrats could boycott the hearing and prevent the assembling of a quorum, which could prevent the hearing from taking place. Except, but the Senate Judiciary Committee, like all Senate committees during the age of COVID, has adapted. Since May 1 of this year, the committee has held six nomination hearings and considered 22 judicial nominees, two in person and 20 via Zoom. In addition, the committee held 16 separate legislation and or oversight hearings, 15 of which employed Zoom. And Chairman Graham has announced that he will take a virtual presence just the same as he will take someone's physical presence. So the Democrats will not be able to prevent the assembling of a quorum by boycotting the confirmation hearing. And that's our Washington report for this week.